This podcast is part of the Darkness Collective. Visit darkness.org to discover more shows like this one. The darkness awaits. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 299th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. On this episode, we're bringing you one of your favorite topics, haunted cemeteries, and this is lucky number 13. You know me, I love cemeteries. I am a total taphophile, and when they've got ghosts, it's even better. Now, before we get into talking about the cemeteries, let's welcome a bunch of people into the spooktacular crew. Welcome to Brit, Cat with a C, Ruben, Jamie, Tyler, Danielle, Chrissy, Alan, Gerard, Jeannie with two N's and a Y, Casey, George, Jesse, Brad, Kiliana, Abdullah, Mary Jo, Cheyenne, Kristen with an E, Niall, Autumn, John with just an N, Joanna, who is from Iceland. We're so excited to have her joining us. Lisa, Chuck, Barbara, Ashley. Carolyn with a Y instead of an I, Kate who spells her name A-I-T, Holly, Javier, Vanessa, and Adriana. Welcome, everybody. And now, this moment, Naughty. We have a lot of lakes in Florida. There are so many in the county in which I live that it is actually called Lake County. Some of the lakes here are pretty big, with Lake Okeechobee being the largest. It's the one you see when looking at a map of Florida, and you see what looks like a hole in the side of a... Well, I won't say, but we all know what the shape of Florida looks like. Indigenous cultures flocked to the area around Lake Okeechobee, and many of them are thought to have been very advanced, building canals and causeways. There are even legends here that claim that some of these tribes were giants. It's easy to laugh off a legend until bones are found. Settlers in the early 1800s claimed to have seen thousands of massive skulls bobbing on the surface of the south end of Lake Okeechobee. They described it as looking like a field of pumpkins. No formal investigation must have been done at the time, but things would be different when a drought that started in 2006 receded the water level of Lake Okeechobee. The black muck revealed thousands of human skeletons. The Anthropology Department of Florida Atlantic University started digging up the bones and artifacts as quickly as they could. What they found was startling. This was a cemetery with two levels. The lower level had small-boned indigenous skeletons that were typical of the native peoples of Central America and the Amazon basin. The upper level contained the bones of a very tall people. The bones were larger and belonged to people measuring over seven feet in height. Their skulls were massive, and many had intentional deformations. An article that I read about this stated... Whether or not they were of mixed human-extraterrestrial-humanoid ancestry has not been determined and, of course, is a matter of conjecture. What? There are those who believe that these giants descended from the Paracas people of Peru and were wiped out by a devastating hurricane. Giants living in southern Florida? Certainly is odd. And now, this month in history. In the month of June, on the 6th, in 1933, the first drive-in theater opened in Camden, New Jersey. I love drive-in theaters. 
They are the perfect place for watching a good scary movie, and how fitting that the first would open with the start of the summer season. I have the newspaper ad here, and it reads, Opens tonight, 8.30. Drive in near Central Airport, two miles from Camden Bridge. Sit in your car and enjoy Talkies, world's finest automobile movie theater. Individual driveways three times the length of your car, 25 cents per car and for each person. Family admission, $1. Three shows nightly, 8.30, 10, and 11.30. The original term for drive-in theaters was park-in theaters, and Richard Hollingshead, who was a sales manager at Wiz Auto Products, received the first patent. He got the idea when he watched his mother struggle to get comfortable in her theater chair, and he thought that people would be more comfortable in their cars. He used his driveway to experiment and mounted a 1928 Kodak projector on the hood of his car and pinned a screen to some trees with a radio behind the screen for sound. His initial investment was $30,000, and he opened his first drive-in in in the Pensacon Township district of Camden, New Jersey, where he lived. The film he showed was the 1932 British Fox comedy Wives Beware, starring Adolf Minjou. There were no in-car speakers back then. There were just three speakers mounted near the screen, making it a little difficult to hear, especially at the back of the theater, and one can only imagine what the neighbors thought. I'd love to know, do you have a drive-in theater near you somewhere? They are unfortunately a dying breed. We have the Silver Moon Drive-In here in Lakeland, Florida. There are various types of cemeteries all around the world. There are those that are huge, with grand sculptures and palatial mausoleums. Others are boring, with flat stones and markers and fake flowers. I think you guys know which I prefer. (laughs) Can you tell? Still others seem abandoned to the elements and time. The one thing they all hold in common is that they are a testament to humanity. We lived and we died. And hopefully, somebody cared. Sometimes, these cemeteries are haunted. On this episode, we'll explore graveyards in New Hampshire, Florida, Colorado, Massachusetts, South Carolina, and Georgia. Join me for Haunted Cemeteries 13. I do care. It's what makes me a taphophile, and I know many of you are too. By reading the names on headstones, we remember, we care. And I know a lot of you go into cemeteries and actually clean those tombstones. Bravo for you. I used to wonder why a cemetery would be haunted. Why hang out with the dead when you can spook the living? I never considered that I love cemeteries in life, so why wouldn't I in death? Perhaps that is why there are spirits in graveyards. There are other reasons too. There was a time when a quote-unquote sinner couldn't be buried in hallowed ground. This always perplexed me. Aren't we all sinners? Perhaps it's this irony that causes a spirit to be at unrest. Or there are claims that an improper burial could cause hauntings. Many wartime mass graves are thought to be haunted because they are so impersonal. And then there's the business of unfinished business. Can a spirit be rooted to their body as a kind of home base from which they come and go to finish up what they need to complete before moving on to whatever's next? And let's not forget the residual ghost that carves out the same path in the cemetery over and over. It never ceases to amaze me that every time I think I've finished up these haunted cemetery episodes, that a bunch of new ones come along, and we have several to explore here. The first one we have here is St. Mary Cemetery, and it's located on Route 114 at 226 North Street. This is near Salem in Peabody, Massachusetts, and I believe it's kind of on the line there between the cities. So some people will say it's in Salem, some will say it's in Peabody. The gate is stone and wrought iron with the name St. Mary Cemetery formed in the wrought iron. The cemetery is attached to St. Thomas Church and was founded as a Catholic cemetery in 1849. Inside the cemetery is a bronze bust sculpture of Reverend John J. Gray that was sculpted by Samuel J. Kitson. Gray had been the pastor of St. James Catholic Church in Salem and was founder of St. John's Church in Peabody. U.S. Congressman George Joseph Bates is buried here. He was a member of the Massachusetts State House of Representatives from 1918 to 1924 and served as mayor of Salem from 1924 to 1937. In 1937, he became a U.S. congressman and was re-elected, serving 12 years until he was killed in 1949 in a plane crash. 
Also buried here is Peacetime Congressional Medal of Honor recipient Patrick Francis Bresnahan. The forest that lies down the hill from the cemetery gives people a really uneasy feeling. Faint white lights move about in the forest and into the cemetery. But that isn't the main haunting here. There's a female spirit clad in gray that has been seen as a full-bodied apparition. Tour guide Sarah Frankie Carter has seen her on multiple occasions. The first time was a few years ago around 3 a.m. She and some friends had been walking by the cemetery when they noticed what looked like a large white trash bag caught up in a tree. The bag seemed to dislodge itself and float down towards them. They soon realized that it wasn't a bag, but a spirit. And she was glowing. And it wasn't just floating at them. It was crawling down the tree, and then it started running at them. The women ran out of the cemetery, completely terrified. Miss Carter returned sometime later with a psychic friend who saw the female apparition. The psychic said that she appeared to be around 20 years old, and she had died at that young age. Another encounter was with a skeptical friend who claimed that he didn't believe in ghosts. He went into the cemetery with Miss Carter, and they ran into the female apparition. He must have started believing because he quickly ran out, it would not go back to the cemetery. And this is one of those cool Salem cemeteries that's old with the tombstones that have the death's head on them and they're a little bit thinner. I just love those cemeteries so much. Gilson Road Cemetery is in Nashua, New Hampshire. The town of Nashua was originally part of a tract of land known as Dunstable that was established at the confluence of the Nashua and Merrimack Rivers. The Dunstable part that was in New Hampshire was renamed Nashua in 1836. The name means beautiful stream with a pebbly bottom in the Nashua tribe's language of Penacook. The town became a textile town starting originally with fur trading and eventually developing textile and cotton mills. After World War I, the city fell into decline as the textile industry changed and moved, but high-tech revitalized it. Gilson Road is home to a cemetery of the same name, and this graveyard has a big reputation for being haunted. Gilson Road Cemetery is a little knockabout rural graveyard. It is isolated and hard to find because a stone wall shields the cemetery from view. The history behind the cemetery has been lost to time, but most people agree that it probably started as a family plot dating back to colonial times. The stone wall is thought to have been built to mark the border of a farm. The farmhouse there is said to have burned down and that the victims of the fire were buried in the cemetery. A later house that was built on the property also burned down with the people killed in this fire being buried in the graveyard as well. It was decided to just leave the property as a cemetery as the luck here for homesteading apparently is not very good. And they already had so many people buried on the land. Why not just make it a cemetery officially? Could this be a reason why visitors experience EMF anomalies, cold spots, record EVP and sea apparitions? Another legend claims that two Native American groups clashed here and that the battle was very bloody. So we have all kinds of things going on here that could be causing some kind of energy. Obviously, these people being burned up in a fire is not good. If you've got a bloody battle, not good. One apparition that is famously seen here has been named Betty. The urban legend that goes with her claims that if you walk farther up Gilson Road, heading to the northwest and shout, Betty Gilson, I have your baby, her ghost will appear. She is seen wearing colonial-era garb and is around 30 years old. There are some witnesses who claim that her apparition appears without any prompting, and some people have nearly driven off the road when she appears in the middle of it. Others claim that she hides behind a tree and that you will only see her peeking around the tree. Sometimes just her hand is seen grasping a tree. She's not the only spirit seen on the road, though. A little boy was killed on this road, and his spirit is seen darting across it occasionally. One paranormal group investigating the cemetery claimed to see shadowy figures moving through the woods behind the cemetery. Mysterious fogs and strange lights are also seen in the wooded area on clear nights. The apparition of a male Native American was seen in the back left corner. This group also claims that the burials of the Lawrence family seem to be the most active, with orbs repeatedly showing up in pictures. And Obviously, I don't trust orbs in a graveyard very often. And perhaps it's a member of this family that is our woman in white here. This lady is seen wearing a flowing white gown as she traipses through the gravestones. These haunted cemeteries always seem to have a lady in white and one in black. I don't know what the deal is, but they seem to like the place. There's something angry here, too. Disembodied voices are sometimes heard, and many times this voice is threatening. There have been times when people have felt almost as though something is pushing back against them at the entrance gate. And a really strange claim is that the back corner where the Native American apparition has been seen seems to disappear at night, along with some of the headstones there. 
Now, maybe it's just really dark and they think everything's disappearing. It's one of the most bizarre things I've heard about a cemetery. And even weirder, they say there is a hole in one of the headstones that appears and disappears. Another person claimed that he was driving by the cemetery one day and he saw a man dressed in clothes dating to the late 1800s. He was just sitting on the stone wall and watched the man as he drove by. They locked eyes and the man who saw the spirit said, It was one of the scariest things I ever saw. I was just driving by, not thinking about anything, just listening to the radio, and something just caught my eye. So I looked over at the cemetery and there he was. There was no way the man could have walked or even ran that fast to not be seen by the time I drove back. Paranormal is not something I believe in, but I have to be honest, this really freaked me out. So it sounds to me, according to the way he describes it, is that he drove past, sees this guy, thinks he's strange because of his clothing, turns around, and when he gets back to the cemetery, he's no longer there. So some crazy stuff going on at Gilson Road. Definitely be careful if you're out on the road because there's apparently spirits there too. The next two haunted cemeteries are right here in my home state of Florida. And the first one is Paige Jackson Cemetery in Sanford. It's in need of a lot of love. Nature's been taking back this historic cemetery that has burials belonging to many of Sanford's pioneers. Old oaks are laden thickly with Spanish moss. Thick brush makes certain areas impenetrable. And many family plots are surrounded by old iron fences in need of repair. Page Jackson is part of the Evergreen Municipal Cemetery, and that's basically five cemeteries that form an arterial network of graves here. They're all kind of together, but they're not considered the same cemetery. They have their own distinct areas and people that are caring for them, but they're all kind of considered the Evergreen Municipal Cemetery. This one apparently is just maintained by volunteers. The city or a church has nothing to do with it. Some of the graves have sunken in as much as two feet, and many burials have only the original rusted-out metal markers from the mortuary to mark where they're located. The town of Sanford is great, and I've done the ghost tour there, which is excellent. It starts in a home brewing shop because the owner of that establishment also runs the tour, and he does a great job. And this isn't just a home brewing shop for, say, craft beer. It's about wine and honey and various forms of tea that you can make. So he's got all kinds of stuff going on there. But Sanford is very well known for its craft beer scene. Sanford was laid out by General Henry Sanford, who bought 12,000 acres of land near Lake Monroe and founded the town in 1870. It was officially incorporated in 1877. The cemetery was established around that same time and was named for the gravedigger William Page Jackson, who allowed many people to bury their dead for free for many years. He'd been a farmer who had land adjacent to the cemetery and worked digging the graves. The graveyard had originally been called the Odd Fellow Cemetery, which pretty much have one of those in every town, but they changed the name to honor him. Many of those dead were black, and this was considered Sanford's first black cemetery. And this makes me want to go down a rabbit hole to talk about these black cemeteries. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole, and I've brought you with me. Obviously, slaves died by the thousands, with the mortality of black children being unbelievably high. The mortality rate for black children on the South Carolina and Georgia coastal rice plantations was around 90% before the age of 16. Can you imagine that? That's almost every child dying before the age of 16. On more interior cotton plantations, one in three children died before reaching adulthood. Obviously, for decades, people of color were segregated in every way, and this was very true in cemeteries. Many times, they wouldn't even be buried in a special section. They had to be buried in a completely separate graveyard. And these fell into ruin and neglect, so many of them are unknown today. I know when I usually run into one, it's because I've stumbled upon it when I'm on a plantation or something. It's not, you know, set up, marked in a certain way, necessarily. So obviously many of these graveyards would be on plantation property because this is where slaves were. And it would be on land that was not used for growing. So basically the trash land that wasn't good for vegetation is where they decided to make a cemetery for these people. Very occasionally a slave might be buried in the family plot of the owner, but this was really not a common practice. Researcher Elsie Clues Parsons wrote of the cemeteries, They were hidden away in remote spots among trees and underbrush. In the middle of some fields or islands of large trees, the owners preferred not to make arable because of the exhaustive work of clearing it. Old graves are now in among these trees and surrounding underbrush. 
Headstones were a rarity, and if they were used, they were fashioned from wood and paint was used to mark them. So obviously, those didn't stand up to weathering, especially down here in the South, and you can forget about the paint lasting. Sometimes a wooden staff that was ornately carved would be used, or iron pipe, sometimes the type that was used for the railroad. Natural things were used too, like large shells or plants. A favorite choice of plant was the yucca, as its prickly nature might help fend off evil spirits in the cemetery. A tree could symbolize that life could continue after death as well. And I really like that because that's kind of the thinking almost behind bringing flowers in. It's like bringing life into a grave. So if you have a tree actually growing on it, and as we know now, there's eco-burials where you can actually be buried as a pod that grows into a tree. Most of the burials happened at night since that was when work was no longer done and it made it possible for slaves to attend from other plantations. There would be prayers and singing and they were really big affairs continuing into the wee hours of the morning. Much of what I read claimed that people of color were buried with their head to the west, and this would be so that the dead person would not have to turn around when Gabriel blew his trumpet in the east, or they would be buried facing Africa. I imagine much of this was based on spiritual beliefs of the individual, particularly in regards to Gabriel blowing his trumpet. If they're not a Christian, then there wouldn't be much sense in them being buried in a certain way for that. Offerings were left or brought later and could include knives, tomato cans, spoons, cups, saucers, clocks, cigar boxes, medicine bottles, and even false teeth. It was thought that the dead could use these things in the afterlife. And this was a key difference between white and black cemeteries. Death was idealized by the whites who chose favorable and park-like locations, while death was not denied by the people of color and random burial was the norm. And there were not things like family plots either. So the slaves definitely had a belief in an afterlife, and they did believe in hauntings. One reason why a plantation might be haunted by a former slave is that the individual was not buried where they had wanted to be buried. Folklore tells of a story of a slave who begged to not be buried in the graveyard of his cruel master. His dying request was ignored, and it was said that his spirit haunted the plantation in retribution. I want to thank you guys for going down this rabbit hole with me. Now back to more of the Paige Jackson Cemetery. This is a cemetery I had not heard of before here in Florida, and so I was quite surprised to read claims that it is considered one of the top 10 haunted cemeteries in Florida. Backpackerverse actually has it at number 10 on their list. I've been to three of these cemeteries, so I have some visiting to do. People have had many unexplained experiences here. They describe feeling cold spots and feeling very uneasy. There have also been shadow figures and strange noises. One person who has heard these strange noises is Kevin Young, who bought a house adjacent to the cemetery. He initially didn't even know it was there because of all the brush. He was outside one night when he saw a greenish glowing light moving through the brush and heard hollow-sounding moans. He ran inside his house, but that would not be the last of the lights or the sounds. He claims to hear them regularly. The spirit of a young boy named Neil is said to be here. Kissimmee Paranormal Investigators have been to the cemetery many times, and one night they took the author of Ghost Hunting Florida, Dave Lampham, for an investigation. They heard some rustling in some bushes, and then a faint happy whistle. Dave was told that this was Neil. He heard the whistling himself, otherwise he would not have believed it. One of the women named Kim told him that she first met Neil a few years before and that he presented as a shadow, but eventually stepped out to reveal a Tom Sawyer-like boy who was barefoot. He seems friendly. Kim also claims that there is a spirit named Annie that she's spoken with several times. She was a girl who passed away in her teens in 1911. She'd been attending a picnic near the cemetery, and the next thing she knew, she was being buried in the cemetery. She appears as a red-haired spirit and occasionally is heard singing. Both she and Neil have been caught on EVP a few times, so they're not just the imaginings of psychics, apparently. And a phantom horse has been heard and seen riding in Paige Jackson Cemetery. The other cemetery here in Florida is in Daytona Beach, and it's called Pinewood Cemetery. Kelly and I visited the cemetery a few months ago when we went to check out a haunted location in Daytona Beach, and we shared that location on a bonus cast. We wanted to see where the members of the family who owned the haunted Victorian house we toured were buried. The cemetery is right in the middle of this old downtown area right across from the Boot Hill Bar. How fitting to have a cemetery right across from the Boot Hill Bar or the Boot Hill Bar right across from the cemetery. The bar caters to bikers, and it was really loud while we were there. I was trying to record video because I was going to make a video to share with everybody, but I really couldn't use it because the noise from music and yelling, it was just too much, and 
So I was like, nah, it's not going to work. So needless to say, I imagine spirits have a hard time resting here too. Although I will say those bikers have been instrumental in saving the cemetery and they've raised $90,000 for its upkeep. We had no idea at the time that the cemetery was supposedly haunted, but it's number nine on the Backpackerverse list. I wish we had known it was haunted back then, but of course, I wouldn't have trusted any EVP that we might have caught on a recorder anyway, because it was really so loud and we were there during the day. So I don't know that we would have picked up on any activity anyway. There are many graves here that are terraced and lots of beautiful funerary art mausoleums. The walls and arches are made of coquina and everything is very white, making it practically glow in the sun. The first burial was in 1877 for the daughter of a John Smith. Her name was Alina Beatrice. She passed away from smallpox as a teenager. He called the cemetery Memento, and ironically, it had been a piece of land he'd already set aside for Alina that she would receive upon her marriage. In the early 1900s, the Pinewood Cemetery Corporation took over the cemetery, but the company was wiped out by the Great Depression and the graveyard fell into disrepair. Burials continued up to the 1970s. One of those burials was in 1979 for a man named Albert Kingston, who left money in a trust for the upkeep of the cemetery. One of the peculiar burials here says John H. Abraham and wife. I mean, come on, the wife doesn't get her name on the tombstone? He was buried in 1927 and she followed two years later. Thankfully, find a grave found her in some census records and her name was Eliza. So even though nobody saw fit to put her name actually on the stone, her name is Eliza. One of the mausoleums has a bricked in door that I would imagine was more of a door or gate, but vandalism took a toll. Sean Rawlings Adler is buried here. Some teens broke into the vault one night and threw his decayed body into the street. They had a party in his crypt until the cops came along and ran them off. The skull of Adler was never found, and some say they've seen a headless spirit roaming the streets, and that might be him. And it really is sad to see this mausoleum. It's beautiful, made out of marble, and then it just has all these bricks in the doorway. At least they're white bricks, so they kind of match the marble, but I just, you know, it's uh, it just drives me crazy. I'm like, what is wrong with you? Do you want somebody to break into where you're buried and throw your body around? They should be haunted for sure. There are also 18 Confederate soldiers that are buried here, most of which don't have markings. They've either been lost to time or were never there to begin with. One of the spirits that reputedly walks the grounds is Alina. After all, this was her land and she loved it. The first sighting of her happened in the 1920s and she's been seen ever since. Most often she appears on the anniversary of her death, which is April 15th. Her apparition is seen wearing a long white gown, so I guess she'd be our lady in white here. There are also the spirits of a man who's described as a giant of a man and a woman who is described as a tiny wisp. They are together in death as they were in life. This couple is Slim and Bonnie. Bonnie had worked at a saloon in Daytona Beach called the Brass Rail Saloon. She would carry a little bar stool around with her since she was a little under five feet tall to make her a little taller. Slim, on the other hand, stood nearly seven feet tall. He would stop in at the saloon in the evenings after working all day at the livery stable. He fell in love with Bonnie at first sight but he was shy. She managed to pull him out of his shell and the two became a couple. Slim started saving his money so they could marry. He was walking Bonnie home one night and since he had drank several beers, he had the courage to ask her to marry him and she said yes. Unfortunately, it was never to be. Slim was riding home after dropping Bonnie off and he hit his head against a tree while riding his horse. The fall from the horse broke his neck. He was buried in Pinewood Cemetery and Bonnie was devastated. She tried to go on, but a couple weeks later, Bonnie's boss found her hanging in her home. The stool she carried everywhere kicked over under her feet. She too was buried in Pinewood, and the couple seemed to have found each other in the afterlife. Their apparitions have been seen, videotaped, and caught in pictures. The largest burial belongs to a Daytona Beach pioneer named Charles Burgoyne. He came to the area in 1896 and really turned the area into a tourist destination. He passed away in 1916 and a giant cross made from coquina blocks marks his final resting place. His wife was very sad about her loss and she would go to his grave every day dressed all in black for 28 years. A spirit described as a shadowy figure dressed in black is seen at the Burgoyne plot, usually sitting down. The McCoy burial plot is the most active. And if you've ever heard the statement, is that the real McCoy? Then you know a little something about the boys buried here. Bill and Ben McCoy were brothers who built luxury vessels. By the 1920s, their kind of boats were falling out of fashion, and they needed another way to make money. Along comes Prohibition, and these brothers became rum runners, 
bringing rum up from the Bahamas to New York City's speakeasies. They made a ton of money, and Bill got a reputation for honesty. Many rum runners watered down their booze to up profits, but Bill refused to do that. Thus came along the saying, the real McCoy. So he'd bring the rum or whatever other booze he had going, and they knew if he was bringing it, that it was the real McCoy. It wasn't watered down in any way. The Coast Guard finally caught up to the McCoys and ended their business. Bill spent nine months in a New Jersey jail. He died in 1948 from a heart attack and tomaine poisoning, and his brother survived him by many more years. I'd heard that both were buried here, but another account claims that Bill's ashes were spread at sea and only his brother is buried in the cemetery. I'm not sure which is the case, but I do believe that Bill's marker is there, so it does have a marker for both. Sounds are heard at the plot that include laughter, breaking glass, singing, and the scent of cigarette smoke is smelled. But again, as I said, there's a bar across the street, and Bill was supposedly, ironically, a teetotaler. So even though he was running a bunch of alcohol, he didn't partake in any of it. So I don't know that he was a big partier type person that would be making all of this ruckus at his plot. And with a rowdy bar across the street, I don't know. Seems like it'd be pretty hard to blame it on ghosts. Many orbs have been caught in photos at this plot as well. And for those of you who don't know what tomaine poisoning is, it's basically food poisoning. Now on to Canton, Georgia, to the Riverview Cemetery. I did a bonus cast that featured the haunted locations in the city of Canton. This was one of them, but I decided to save it for our Haunted Cemeteries episode. It was established in 1844 after Judge Joseph Donaldson donated a plot of land for burial. This was not land that was unfamiliar with graves. There were Native Americans already buried here, and one of them is thought to have been a Cherokee chief, although his name has been lost to history. His plot is marked with a stack of granite rocks. And he apparently is one of our ghosts here. Strange golden orbs show up in pictures of the grave on such a regular basis that it's hard to just discount them as bugs. One man who walked in the cemetery nightly with his dog said that every time they were near this particular spot, his dog would go nuts with barking. An even stranger set of stories occurred on Halloween night several years ago. A special ghost tour was being offered in the cemetery, and everyone on the tour witnessed the apparition of a horse-drawn hearse sitting at the back of the old church there. There were glass panels on either side, which revealed a dark coffin inside. Dark-colored horses were hitched to it, and their harnesses were decorated with plumes of black feathers. The tour-goers all thought that it had been rented for the event until it was no longer there. The tour company said they had not rented a hearse for the event either. This tour usually doesn't have jump scares, but they changed it up for Halloween. One of the guides was sitting and waiting for the group to come by when he heard his cue to get into position. The girl role-playing the gravedigger walked near him. When he heard her footsteps, he got into position. But no group came, and he didn't see the gravedigger either. He waited several minutes, still no group. He stood up and walked over to where he'd heard the gravedigger, and there was no one there. He was positive that he must have heard disembodied footsteps. That theory was solidified when he was later pushed down by something he could not see. A tour guide saw a spirit while giving a tour one day. She noticed a young man about her height standing off to the side of the group when she was telling them about a certain plot. He was wearing a long sleeve shirt without buttons or fasteners of any kind, a vest, and drawstring pants. The outfit was definitely from another time, but she just thought that maybe he was someone on the tour she hadn't noticed before. When they arrived at the next spot she wanted to share, he was gone. It is my understanding that only one plot here has a statue, and it is this burial where most of the paranormal activity takes place. This generally involves people being touched. A young lady in a wheelchair was there with her mother, and they both were touched by something they could not see. Another time, a woman was on the tour with her young daughter, and when they got to this plot, the little girl said, Baby. The mother and guide asked her what she saw, and she said she saw a baby sitting there. The burial is a grave of an 11-month-old baby girl at this plot. The statue at this plot is said to roam the cemetery at night, and there are people who claim that they have seen it shift from foot to foot. That'd be weird, seeing a statue moving. I'm getting a little tired of standing all day. And you know, they say children can see things we can't, so did she see the spirit of that baby girl? Other spirits seen in the cemetery include a tall man dressed in dark clothing, ghost animals, a trapper, a red-headed man wearing overalls, a white shirt and tie, a woman who weeps at a grave towards the back of the graveyard, and shadow figures. Our next cemetery was suggested by Nestor Girl, and this is Old Sheldon's Churchyard. Haphazard is the term I would use here, and that's because this is basically a ruin. 
The old Sheldon Prince William Parish Church in Yemassee, South Carolina, had once stood here, and it had the customary churchyard attached to it. All that is left are red brick walls and columns and gravestones that lean or are sunken with a few above-ground crypts. The church was built between 1745 and 1755. It was burned down by the British during the Revolutionary War in 1779 and was rebuilt in 1826. The church was again burned down in 1865, this time by the Federal Army under General Sherman. You remember when he did the march from the sea and he came through Savannah? Well, this church got it. Although I did find a little bit of a discrepancy here. There's a letter that was written in 1866 by Mitten Leverett, and it stated that Sheldon Church not burnt, just torn up in the inside, but can be repaired. The tearing up was to use the materials inside the church to rebuild homes burnt by General Sherman. So I don't know if the church was actually burnt by him or if it was because of his other actions that they ended up taking apart the church so they could rebuild homes. Not sure what happened here, but this church is definitely gutted and has no roof. The name Old Sheldon was taken from the ancestral home of the Bull family who had come over from Warwickshire in England. One can tell from the ruins that this was once a large and beautiful church with a flair towards medieval castle-like structure. There are graves scattered throughout the ruins, and there are ghosts too. Our Lady in White here is actually dressed in brown, in an outfit that looks like it dates to the time of the pilgrims. She's seen most often standing over the grave of an infant. While many people feel a sense of peace at this location, it is near this infant's grave that many are struck with a great sense of sorrow. Disembodied footsteps are heard here as well, and there are those that have seen strange flashing lights. If you decide to stop by the ruins, be sure to include a stop at the Carolina Cider Company. This roadside shop is close to the ruins and offers a huge variety of ciders, fresh pies, jams, pickles, and more. And all I had to do was mention pie, and I'm in. And finally, we head over to Colorado, to a city I actually had never heard of before, even though I lived in Colorado for over 30 years. And this is Silvercliff. Silvercliff Cemetery in Colorado is owned and operated by the town of Silvercliff and was founded in the early 1880s. Silvercliff was once the third most populous town in Colorado, right behind Denver and Leadville, which really made me go, how did I not ever hear about this city before? It was incorporated in 1879 and got its start as a silver mining town. The big mine here was called the Geyser Mine, and it did well until eastern stock manipulators came in and several unscrupulous stock promoters managed to bankrupt two of the mining companies who owned the mine. It never turned a profit after that, even though it was one of the deepest mines in Colorado. The gate to the cemetery is just a simple metal arch with the name formed in metal. The land is treeless and pretty barren with mostly scrub grass and there are two sections, one for Catholics and one for Protestants. It's famous for the Silver Cliff Lights, which look similar to blue lantern lights or bright white spheres. They are seen bouncing among the tombstones. They were first seen by a group of miners who were taking a shortcut through the cemetery. They got lost but saw the lights and found their way. Word spread and people came from all around to see them. The lights were even featured in the August 1969 National Geographic magazine, Volume 136, Number 2, which I thought was really amazing because at first you'd be like, oh, nice legend, but if the lights are featured in National Geographic, there must be something to them. Now, we sometimes get things called swamp lights here, or they sometimes call them wildfire. I don't know why they would call them wildfire because we actually have wildfires here, so wouldn't want to mix those two up. But most of you would probably know these as Will-o'-the-Wisp, and that's what people think this may be, are just Will-o'-the-Wisp right here in the middle of this cemetery out in this scrub grass, which to me is kind of a weird place to see this. When I think of Will-o'-the-Wisp, I'm thinking of a deep forest somewhere in the Appalachian Mountains or over in Europe and Ireland and Scotland. Not on a Colorado mountain, some old silver mining town at all. So why don't we go down our second rabbit hole for this episode? That's two, two rabbit holes. Ah, 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 ah. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. All right, so I've talked about Will-the-Wisps on a previous episode, I'm pretty sure, but let's talk a little bit about them again. The Latin for them is ignis fatus, and this is foolish fire. They're generally seen as these balls of light that are described like flickering lanterns, exactly what we're hearing about here in the Silvercliff Cemetery. Now, there are people who say, well, maybe they're fireflies or the eyes of an owl, something like that. 
That would not be the case here in Colorado, probably, because they don't have fireflies. And I just don't see a barn owl's eyes being like flashing lights. One of the most accepted theories was discovered by Alessandro Volta, and he discovered methane in 1776. He believed that lightning mixed with the swamp gases caused the ghost lights. Now, this swamp gas or marsh gas is caused by the breakdown of organic matter, and there's a lot of that sludge that's in the swamp. So it gives off these gases, and then you have lightning, and then all of a sudden you've got these ghost lights. There's a lot of technological advances that prove this to be true. Stories and legends about Will-o'-the-Wisps are from all around, especially in Britain and Ireland. They believe that the Will-o'-the-Wisps were spirits of the dead who used the lights to lure travelers further into the forest or the woods to help them to get lost. These are spirits that were said that they could not enter heaven or hell. They were just kind of stuck. Some people believe that they're some kind of an elemental. They're generally considered mischievous, malevolent, and they're believed to be omens of death when they're seen in cemeteries. So is that what we have going on here? Well, obviously, these are legends. Are fairies real? Are these ghost lights real? Are these spirits real? I leave that for you to decide. But when we look at what's going on here in Colorado, there's no swamp there either. And as I described the cemetery to you, it's very much like a desert or a plains, just with some grass, very dry. You don't have any trees here. So I find it hard to believe that we've got this methane gas that's rising up and lightning that's causing these ghost lights that people are seeing. I also sometimes wonder if that's a possibility because will-o'-the-wisps do seem to lead people places. I could see the gas dissipating, but why would this little orb bounce around and keep moving and keep going and hold its shape? I just, I don't know. It's a very mysterious thing to me. And hey, I've seen the movie Brave, so I know these things, they're real. Come on now. And just to prove that this is something that is talked about all over the world, Germans also talk about will-o'-the-wisps. And one of their cures for them is to throw a handful of dirt from a graveyard at them and they'll go away. So if you're seeing them in the actual cemetery, just grab a fistful of dirt and heave it. In Denmark, they call will-o'-the-wisps jack-o'-lanterns. Now, I know what a jack-o'-lantern is and it's not a will-o'-the-wisp, okay? In the Netherlands, they say these are souls of unbaptized children. And even down in Argentina, they call this lasmala, which is evil light and it's greatly feared. If the light is red, They say that this is coming from Satan and that he's tempting the onlooker. In Mexico, they're considered souls of witches. And in Bengal, they're called Alea and are thought to be the souls of fishermen who died fishing and attempt to lure other fishermen to their deaths. And even down in Australia, these are called Min-Min lights and they follow people who see them. If the traveler follows the light instead, he will never be seen again. So my advice is, if you see a ghost light, just leave it alone. Don't follow it. Don't chase it. The fact that these miners didn't become more lost upon seeing those lights really blows my mind. I half wonder if this story didn't get switched around and that these miners were cutting through the cemetery and that the lights caused them to get lost and then they finally managed to find their way. I think that's probably how the story really should have gone. Thanks for joining me down in this other rabbit hole. Lots of great stories here and that's what makes cemeteries so interesting. The stories in the stones. Are there spirits moving around among those stones? Are these cemeteries haunted? That is for you to decide. Well, lots of great cemeteries to check out. Something else for you to check out is historygoesbump.com. That's our official website where you can find out everything you'd want to know about the podcast, from where to find us on social media to where you can get your logo gear. And I wanted to let you all know we don't just have the HGB Emporium. We now also have Mort's Memento Mori, which is over on Etsy. So at the Emporium, you can get your stuff like hats, bags, mugs, t-shirts, sweatshirts, that kind of stuff. At the Etsy shop that is headed up by Mort and is also known as Barnaby's Boutique, you can get stickers, which are bumper stickers, your 3 by 3 stickers, decals, lanyards, magnets, that kind of stuff. If you go to the website, you'll see the tabs for each of those locations and a little bit of each of those purchases comes right back to the podcast. So you'd be supporting the podcast by doing that as well. If you want to send me some feedback, you can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And I do have some email to share. First, Tom has sent an email. He says, hi, I'm Tom. And I wanted to tell you, I love your show. I'm working my way up through the archive. 
I also thought you might be interested to hear my first memory. It's pretty spooky. My dad was deployed to Germany while I was a baby, and we were there for three years, during which my little sister was born. My very first memory is my mom tucking me into bed. My sister was in her crib on the other side of the room. I remember laying there looking at the light coming from underneath the door when I suddenly noticed what looked like two feet blocking the light. After a few moments, either my eyes adjusted or it manifested because I could see what looked like a dark figure in a dark robe and hood standing in the room. I got scared, and as kids seem want to do, I hid under my blanket. Then a weight pressed on my stomach for about three seconds, then lifted. It wasn't a heavy or painful weight. It was like someone pushing down lightly with their hand. I don't remember anything else. I've always remembered it, and I have no idea what exactly it was or what it meant. Well, let me tell you, that would have really freaked me out as a kid, and I thought that blankets and sheets, those kind of things were supposed to be our protection. How in the world did this thing push down on him when he was protected by a blanket? Now, I would like to believe that this was some kind of a family member or a protective spirit just checking in on him, making sure he was okay, but since it appeared as a dark figure, I don't know. Thanks for sharing, Tom. Rochelle sent me an email. Thank you so much for that. I have noted your suggestion, and I love the pics that you sent me. So thank you for that. And then I heard from Amanda and her daughter, Charlotte Jane. Amanda writes, I've been a listener for over a year now, and I absolutely love your podcast. I've just recently gotten involved in researching my ancestry, and I'm now even more fascinated by the personal side of American history. And what could be more personal than myths, legends, and ghost stories? And more fun, right? I've been thinking about including my daughter for a while now when listening to the podcast, but was worried she was too young and would be scared. She still can't watch Scooby-Doo without getting nightmares, lol. Since we're going to Washington, D.C. and Colonial Williamsburg this summer, I thought I'd take the chance and listen to the White House and Colonial Williamsburg episodes with her. She loved them, and now she's decided we should do the ghost tour at Williamsburg. Yay, another young convert. Wonderful. She's going to have a lifelong love of ghost tours, and that makes me very happy. She wants to listen to the podcast all the time and ask me endless questions about what is going on and where the places are and about the historical significance of each story. Turns out she's a history fan. She learns everything she can about the Civil War, the Revolutionary War, and colonial America. She even made me look up the signers of the Declaration of Independence to see if we had any ancestors sign it. We heard a particular episode this morning where it was mentioned that your youngest listener at the time was eight years old. Well, we've got that beat. My daughter's seven. She'll be eight in late November. Her name is Charlotte Jane. So hello to you, Charlotte Jane. And I think it's fabulous that you are listening to the podcast at just the age of seven. I did have to write back and say, unfortunately, a couple of weeks ago, I heard from Aria, who's six. We'll have to say that Charlotte Jane is my second youngest listener, but it just does my heart good to know that I've got these kids out here listening and that you guys are enjoying this. And hopefully it is instilling a lifelong love of history, because if you care about history, you're going to care about old stuff, which means it's going to stick around from graveyards to historic buildings to furniture, you name it. I just love that you've got a love for history like that. She says her favorite president is Teddy Roosevelt. So she'd love for me to do a show on him. If I find out there's some ghosts connected to him, I will definitely add it to the list. And they also suggested checking out their hometown of Fort Lauderdale, Florida, which I will be passing through probably this weekend. So I'll see what kind of haunts I can find there. So thank you to both of you ladies for writing to me. I appreciate that. I want to thank all of you for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. Before we welcome anybody into the cemetery, we have two one-time donations to talk about. I want to thank Beth Vanderyacht for your one-time donation. It was very generous and Beth is already an executive producer, so I couldn't believe that she did that. Greatly appreciate it. And Dave Ponce, he sent a very generous one-time donation as well. Thank you to both of you. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. We want to welcome Lynn Savage into the cemetery. She will be buried in a chest tomb. And Summer Nance decided that she'd like to be buried in a chest tomb too. So thank you for increasing your support. Mort, you're almost done with your eulogies. I think we only have three more episodes of them. Take it away, big guy. Eulogies by Mort. Nikita Unverzagd came from the state of Nutmeg. I hear she was a real good egg. She liked to listen to a ghost story. 
as long as it wasn't too gory. Cheryl McReynolds had made unique creations, and we sure did appreciate her donations. She had lived in the show me state, but now she is in a burial estate. Chelsea Smith was a very sweet soul. Her name is now added to my death scroll. She was a fan of the South that is old. Now in the grave she has started to mold. This next eulogy is for Tiffany Wilson. To our little podcast she did listen. She had supported HGB for almost a year. That makes her special and very dear. Andrea Kano lived on a beach named for a seal. This is her little eulogy spiel. Our host enjoyed hanging with her on the Queen Mary. Enjoying a tour that was a little scary. Jones had lived in Victoria down under. I hear it's a land full of wonder. She was a captain in the game of cricket. But now she has lost the ultimate wicket. Theresa Rath was nicknamed Billy. And she had lived in Wisconsin, which is chilly. I wonder if ghosts there like cheese. I'm lactose intolerant, so it makes me... Uh, sneeze. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com